I did it in my spare time because I was taking insurance classes, getting designations behind my name. That was my relaxed time. After all my day at work, supervising people, going to my boys, little league games and all of that. And my husband worked shift work. So there were days I went home and he was not there. He was on the 311 shift. And to fight the loneliness, I would write until he came, got off at 11, put the boys to bed and wait for him to come home. That was my pastime. So I could not envision writing for a living. I'm like, no, my calling is to be Miss State Farm, Miss Professional. This is just something I'm doing to calm down after a day at work. That was the voice of Brenda Jackson. Brenda Jackson, who has written more than 140 books, ranging from Arabesque to Harlequin Silhouette Desires to Kamani, to HQN, to her own publishing house. Welcome to Faded Mates, everyone. I am Jennifer Prokop, a romance reader and critic. And I'm Sarah McLean. I read romance novels and I write them. This is a real treat, everyone. We loved our conversation with Brenda Jackson. It is fabulous. She tells some great stories. And um, we are really excited for you to give it a listen. So without further ado, here we are with Brenda Jackson. First of all, thank you so much for being on the podcast with us today. We are, it's a real thrill. (laughs) So one of the questions we like to just really start with is ask people what made them a romance writer and a romance reader, because they often go hand in hand. Yes, they usually do. Um, (laughs) For me, they didn't go hand in hand. Um, I became a romance writer before I really understood what the genre was all about. I became a romance writer when I was still in high school. And what I did was build a need for my classmates. I wrote, I was into Gidget and Moondoggy, and I know I'm probably (laughs) aging myself, but when I say Gidget and Moondoggy, I'm talking about Sandra G and Bobby Darren. Mm-hmm. And I am from Florida, and it's a beachy town. So I grew up loving Gidget and Moondoggy type stories. And I wanted to write stories for my classmates to entertain them that were Gidget and Moondoggy type stories with people who looked like me. So that's what I would do. And I would write it on notebook paper, no more than 10 to 20 pages. And during that time, I did not have access to a copy machine. So I wrote like five copies of the story. <gasps> what oh my a goodness. good friend. <laughs> yes. And each, sometimes they had different endings. Because by the time I wrote maybe the fourth one, I'm like, oh, I like this ending better. <laughs> but the ending always was happy. And my classmates would meet my bus every Monday. Because I did all this <laughs> on the weekend. And every Monday, they would meet my bus. And I would hand them, have it stapled, so it was like a little booklet. And it would go around the schools. And soon my teachers found out what I was doing because the kids were reading my stuff in class <laughs> other, other than doing their work. 
And so that's how I became a romance uh, writer, Um, because it was a love story. It was a very innocent boy meets girl type of love story, because during that time, at the age of 14, when I was in this eighth grade, I met a young man who I just felt, gosh, he is the epitome of what I think someone should be. Now, at 14, you think, <laughs> okay, what does she know? That's from, that's from the stories I write, wrote, and from watching my dad and my uncle and just how I thought a guy should grow up to be. And believe it or not, I grew up and married that guy. Oh, um, I yes, love that we, story. We dated all through high school. And because of him, and he never disappointed me as far as being the gentleman romantic and all of that and that's what kept me going and it was only when I was um right before I had my first son that a co-worker introduced me to romance books and it was Catherine Whittaker, Shanna, sure. um, you know um all of her books um Flame in a Flower Wolf and the, the, the Dove, that's the good and stuff, all right? Of that. And I could not get enough. In fact, I named my second son Brandon after Brandon Birmingham from A Flame and the Flower. Of course. So I don't care what type of bad publicity <laughs> Brandon Birmingham is getting now as far as... He raped her. He did this. Brandon Birmingham was my hero back in that day. And I named my son Brandon after him. So that's how I merged the two. Do you still have any of your stapled handwritten stories? Are they all gone? I think they're all gone. Someone has them. Someone has one, (laughs) ma'am. Yeah, well, some of the teachers took them because they took them from the kids. And I got in trouble. They just wanted to read them. them. (laughs) They're like, this is way better than this stuff we're teaching. And I got in trouble, believe it or not, for writing them, for um, taking the kids' attention away from the teachers. And my sure. mom had to come out to the school to tell me to stop writing in front of my dean of girls. Because after she told me so many times, and I still wrote my stories, <laughs> and I did it underhandedly. Like, you can't meet my bus, <laughs> but meet me in the hall here. <laughs> you know? I love this. And I love so, it. Perfect. And a lot of those key, uh, young people, they're adults like me now. They love to tell the story. And they're some of my biggest readers now, I my bet. classmates. <laughs> original they fans. Of, they were my <laughs> original fans. And they always knew, they said, I, we knew you were going to grow up to be an author. I'm like, no, I'm not. My goal was to go to corporate America, which I did. And it was only when I would go to my class reunions that they would always come up to me and say, did you write the book? Have you written a book? I'm like, have one written a book since eighth grade. <laughs> that was my question. So you are in corporate America. Can you tell uh-huh. us what you were doing? What was your life like? How did you get to putting pen to paper after reading Kathleen Woodowis with a big job and a big life? And Oh, gosh. Uh, my goal was to be Miss State Farm. I was working for State Farm <laughs> Insurance Company, and I loved it. And I loved the company that I worked for. I was one of those that said, okay, I can win lotto on Saturday. I'm still going to be back at my desk on Monday morning because I enjoy what I do because I moved up the corporate ladder. State Farm helped send me to college. I went to a private college in Jacksonville. 
Jacksonville University. And they had a program that they helped send you to college and then they put you in management. So I was in management and part of management, you got to travel, you got to do a lot of things. And I'm not an adventurous person. They would send me places and I don't, when it got dark, I didn't just go out and go shopping. I would come to my hotel room and I'm not a TV person. So my husband got tired of hearing everyone say, why don't you write the book? Why don't you write this book? So he gave me one Christmas a collection, just a blank notebook paper and say, take this with you and just start writing instead of calling home, making sure everything is Perfect, because I got this. Me and the boys are okay. Concentrate on something else. So then that's when I started after Kathleen Widowist. I started writing. I said, let me write a historical book. That's what I was reading. Mm -hmm. And then it was like too much research. I don't know what these (laughs) people did back in the day. And I'm not going to try to figure this out. Nora Roberts, Linda Howard, Jude Devereaux. So that's what I started reading. And after I read enough of them, I said, okay, I think I can do this because it had a happy ending. And that was what I looked for, a happy ending in a story. And that's when I started writing contemporary. And I think that wasn't my calling. I still didn't see it as my calling. I thought it's something to do while I had nothing to do. So that's why I started writing romance. So how long were you writing in hotel rooms before somebody said, Brenda, it's time. It's time you mail that off. Um, I think I was right several years because, again, I'm still thinking about State Farm. And during that time, I was going to college um, with State Farm. And then when I finished college and started traveling a lot with the company, um, my friends would give me these books. They say, you read these <laughs> first and then you write. <laughs> and so that's what I did. And I think it was maybe five years until the next class reunion. We were having class sure. reunions every five years. And so the next time, I think it was my 15th year class reunion that I went. And when they asked me, well, have you written a book? I say, yes, I wrote for Corporate America. I made sure they knew that. But in my spare time, I have written this book. And they say, well, when it's coming out, I'm like, oh, I didn't think that <laughs> far ahead. I just wrote the book, you know, because during that time, I didn't have a computer. I wrote longhand. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and they're too old for me to hand them a copy of my long <laughs> and you're And you're too no. old to be writing it seven times and having a different yeah, ending, and right? Yeah, I time to do that. Yes. So my husband, again, he surprised me um, by buying me a word processor one Christmas. And that's, you know, was the closest thing to a computer I got. It was an Amstrad word processor. And I thought that was gold. <laughs> Because I basically, it could travel with me. It could do a lot. And so I wasn't alone in my hotel room. I was doing that in my spare time. Um, So how many of these manuscripts did you have before you started thinking, maybe I should try and sell them? Oh, gosh. I think after reading Nora Roberts, the McGregors, Linda Mm -hmm. Howard, the um, McKenzie's. Um, yeah, um, 
Devereaux, Jewel Devereaux, the Montgomery's. Mm -hmm. And I said, wow, it must be something with this film. You know, everybody, their their biggest selling books, families, they write family saga, and all of them start with the M. So then the thing, the campaign was, I got to have a family name to start with the M, because that got to be it. So I was traveling on a business trip, and I had, you know, my business car, and I was going down this road, and I saw the name Madaris. Mm-hmm. I'm like, wow, that's a neat name. So I knew once I got that name for my family, then I knew, okay, now I know what I need to call these people. They're going to be the Madaris family. And so I named the um, brothers. I knew it was going to be guy-oriented, you know, because when I think of as a woman, when I read, I read for the guys. <laughs> you know, I want to read, see how sexy the guys are. So... I named the guys from, you know, the the kids' names of my friends, Justin, Dexter, and Clayton. Those were the three brothers, and they were going to have a sister. I said, I better put the girl in there, Christy. Her name was Christine, a niece of mine. And then there was going to be an uncle, Uncle Jake. Uncle, his name was Jacob. And that was going to be all of the family. And that's what I centered on. And I started, I wrote Justin's story, and then I said, okay, I need to know where to go from now here. And so I basically, after that, I um, joined RWA, and I met other authors to tell me what I needed to do once I wrote my first book, Justin Madera's book. And through my group, we would meet once a week, and um, I would go after work, and we would meet in each other's homes, and they're the ones that told me what I needed to do um, as far as, okay, this is how you get published. And I thought Justin's book was perfect. (laughs) It was perfect. This is Tonight and Forever? Tonight and forever. And I was not prepared for the rejection because mm-hmm. none of my classmates rejected me. They loved my stuff. You know, mm-hmm. they would wait around my bus. <laughs> and so to send it off and to be told it wasn't good, it hurt. You know, I'm like, what do you mean it's not good? My classmates like my stuff. And I let other people write it. I mean, read it. And they liked it as well. And it didn't, it was years later. Well, not years later. A couple of years later, I found out what was wrong with my story. Uh, And that hurts too, because I went to RWA and it was this um, editor pulled me aside. And I'm not going to say who she is or what, how she was to. But she pulled me aside and she said, you have a beautiful handwriting. You tell stories. I can feel it. But the only thing, your characters are not the right color. They need to be white. You send, you make these characters white and I will buy your book. And I'm like, what? That doesn't make sense to me. She said, why doesn't it? Do you see any black books out there? Do you see any books out there with black people on the cover? And at that point, at that point, 
that's when it hit me. No, I hadn't. That I was reading Linda Howard's and all of that. And I was, it was just a beautiful story. I didn't get caught up in the race of the people. You know, it was just a beautiful love story. So what does it matter if the hero and heroine look like me, if it's a beautiful love story? That's what could I could not comprehend. Because if you are romantic, you going to love a beautiful love story, no matter who the hero and heroine. And people prove that when they have these people that goes from cats, some humans <laughs> to cats, you know, like werewolves, you know, if they could do all of that, then what does it matter, you know, at the point of what I'm writing, just because there are, they are of another race. So that's what I encountered. I would say the year, right? This is the late 80s, early 90s. It must have been based on the other things you were talking about, it, right? It, it was. And yes, that's what, that's what you're talking about. In really the late 80s, you're right, and the early 90s. And my um, friends at work who supported me, I didn't write a story for them, but they were the ones who were reading my, my stories for clarity to see whether it was interesting. And they were my white friends and they loved it. They never said, oh, Brenda, I can't read this if it's not about a white person. They never said that. My readers, my writers group who I was meeting with after work all the time, I was the only black member of that group. And they said, oh, Brenda, you need to write this color. No, they said, write what you know, write what you're familiar with. And I was familiar with people who look like me, but people who are romantic anyway. And then that's when I saw that some people judge you so much by the color of your skin. They think that you don't live a normal life, that you are not, yet your husband can't be the husband that bring you flowers for Thanksgiving, that does things for you, that take care of the kids while you travel, that support you and your goals, um, and, you know, hold back on his just to support you. So I just, that just went over my head. And unfortunately, um, it opened my eyes to a lot of things. And when that editor pulled me aside and told me that, they said, well, we have black writers who do you know, you would never know they were black because the stuff they're writing for us are white, but they are black. But everybody thinks they're white because no one at that point, I guess, saw the author. They turned the book in. And author didn't go out and did, do book signings. So they were undercover. And I didn't want to be that type of author. I wanted something my family, my friends, everybody could be proud of. And I told, I said, well, then I guess I will never sell a book. But that didn't discourage me from writing. I continued after Justin's story. I wrote Dex's story. I wrote the other brother's story. I had written Three books, some of my classmates, I typed it up. And during that time, I had gone from handwriting to typing. And so I typed it up and I let them read it. They said, oh, you have grown so much since <laughs> high school. We thought you were so good in high school. This is even better. 
And so, um, but I did, again, I did it in my spare time because I was taking insurance classes, getting designations behind my name. That was my relaxed time. After all my day at work, supervising people, going to my boys, little league games and all of that. And my husband worked shift work. So there were days I went home and he was not there. He was on the 311 shift. And to fight the loneliness, I would write until he came, got off at 11, put the boys to bed and wait for him to come home. Um, that was my pastime. So I could not envision writing for a living. I'm like, no, my calling is to be mistake farm, <laughs> miss professional. This is just something I'm doing to calm down after a day of work. So I didn't care that the book would not get published ever. You know, I'm like, if they want to think that way, just because my characters are black, they could not have a happy ending, then let them think that way because I could care less. Right. Mm-hmm. This week's episode of Faded Mates is sponsored by Blair Babylon, author of Once Upon a Time, Billionaires in Disguise, Flicka. I already love it. Everything about it. So, okay, listen. There was a beautiful princess once upon a time named Flicka von Hanover who, like, was just living her good, her beautiful princess life. Uh, But then she was engaged to a prince to be married, and then she found him in bed with, like, multitudes of other people, including her own secretary. So she ran, and he chases her, so she has no choice, Jen. She needs help. She needs help. She really does. Like any good princess. And so she contacts her bodyguard from when she was young. Dieter. I cannot get enough of this. Dieter Schwartz, who was her bodyguard for many years when she was young and, like, protected her from assassins and kidnappers and high school dates who got too handsy. And now he has to protect her from this Bad prince. It is a bodyguard romance with Dilf energy, and this is all I want in the world. Yeah, it is. And I just want to say that Blair's bio includes the line, she lets her freak flag fly and writes hot, sexy, romantic suspense thrillers that bang. Bam. Um, Once Upon a Time is available in print, ebook, and audio. And in fact, at the end of this week's episode, you can stick around and hear the beginning of Once Upon a Time. Or just like us, you could just download it right now. <laughs> thank, <laughs> thank you to Blair for sponsoring this week's episode of Faded Mates. How does Arabesque come into the story? That was your first publisher, right? Arabesque was my first publisher. Before Arabesque, I had gotten rejected so many times. It was like, after you've rejected, you look for rejection. You figure that, okay. And, you know, during that time, you couldn't do multiple submissions. It would You have to wait six oh months gosh. for a publisher to tell you. Oh, yeah, a publisher finds out that not only had you sent your book here, but there at the same time, you got blackballed. Oh my so gosh. you had to wait until they rejected your book, which they would, and then send it somewhere else, wow. waiting for another rejection, hoping 
that they would um, do something and they never did. Do you have an agent at this point or are you cold? Oh, are no, you slush I'm, piling? You know, I felt like I'm this professional. You know, my job at mm-hmm. State Farm was dealing with contracts. And unless it was way out there and there was a contract that was way out there one time, but unless it was way out there, um, I could deal with it because I felt like I could do what an agent could do at mm-hmm. the time, you know, sure. to sell my book. out. And so my husband started, he said, they need to see you. They need to see the classy, sophisticated, educated woman that you are. You know, sometimes you need to let them see you. So I basically started going to um, RT, RWA, all those conferences and I was Miss Professional. I dressed professional. I looked like, you know, very, and you know, I would get compliments. Oh gosh, you look stunning. You look this. You dress for success. Cause I believe that. And but we can't buy your book because the people on the cover is not what America is looking for at the time. How Arabesque came about. And I have to give my kudos to Catherine Falk of RT because I would go to her conventions every year because I went first as a groupie after I started reading romance for um, relaxation. I had certain authors that I really loved, like Nora Roberts and others. And so I said, gosh, you know, Roberts is going to be at Catherine Falk. I am going. And so I went, you know, just as a regular reader, not as a writer, but I would attend the workshops. You know, you go there, you want to attend the workshops and the parties and all of that. Same thing with RWA. And what I discovered, Catherine Falk said, well, a friend of mine, I told them, you know, some of the brightest women come to mind, um, RT convention and they can't get these books published because nobody believed in them. No one ready to take a chance on the African-American community. And through her, she put a bug in Walter Zacharias' Mm -hmm. ear. And um, the next thing I know was that Walter Zacharias had hired Monica Harris and that he was going to take the step that a lot of publishers would not take. And he was going to start a line, a multicultural line called Erebus. And I was there at uh, RWA when it was revealed. And my name somehow got put in their faces. And I still think Catherine won't admit, but I think it was Catherine Falker. She knew who we were. If nobody else knew who you were, she knew who the authors were. And so um, when I walked, you know, walked up to Monica Harris, I had never met her before. And she said, yeah, I know your name and I would like to see something from you. I said, wow. <laughs> and by then I had written all three of my novels. I had written the three brothers because even though they were rejected, I was not going to let rejection stop me from writing what I wanted to, I believe in finishing what you start. And so I said, I got all three. She said, let me read just the one. So that was Justin. And it was um, the next year when 
that was, you know, I sent it to her. I cleaned it up, sent it to her. And at RWA, the following year, she bought my book. She let me know she bought it at RWA. She said, I was going to call you before you left to come here. It was in New York that year. And she said that I thought this would be fitting. You and I have a meeting. And I want you to know that I would love to launch the Madeiras family. And I'll never forget calling my husband. I left that meeting and went to the nearest phone because we didn't have cell phones back then. And say, honey, someone want Justin. <laughs> and I could just hear the excitement in his voice that somebody was going to finally accept my book and put the put people on the cover like me. At the time, it didn't matter to me at the time that we were get paid half of what the white authors were getting paid because it was explained to me that Walter, um, Mr. Zacharias was taking a chance. So, but if the book did well, and I knew what marketing was all about and I knew all of that. So that didn't bother me because I knew he was taking a chance and he put Arabesque out there it was up to us to, um, you know, go out there and publicize ourselves, which we did. I put a team together, a Brenda Jackson team of my friends, both black and white, and they hit the ground running. And at my very first book signing, I sold over 600 novels. Wow. Because I even had the president, the CEO of State Farm. <laughs> Good for you. Office. He made sure, he said, look, we have a young lady who worked with us, who we home grew. Because I started at State Farm at 18. Oh, and we cool grew thing. her. We sent her to college. She's written a book. We need to go support her. And he couldn't be there. He was out of town. But he sent his secretary present me with a, a thing of roses. So nice. Um, uh, and they That's were peach-colored so nice. roses. And this was the president, this was the CEO of my company did this. Brenda, and I'm a, I'm buying a house right now, and now I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna call State Farm <laughs> and get see if they'll insure my house because this is such a nice story. Yes, and they supported me through my career. I had the best yeah. of both worlds, and wow. I can say that um, they supported me, and I supported them because by you know by the end they um, were trying to market into the African-American community. And they said, oh, yeah, you are a secret weapon because you're our employee who loved working for us. And, you know, they would send me to the Black Expos. Anything that they had lined, like college football mm -hmm. games where they were the title sponsor, they would send me there for book signing. And this is a corporation That's I worked awesome. for. I was still in That's management. That's really cool. That was really cool. They were getting my name out there. So I had an advantage that I was not expecting. They said, you could do it both. I said, well, I want to be Miss Corporate America. Well, you could do it both. You could do this and you could do that. And I still moved up in my career with them. Wow. But they still supported awesome. me. Yes, so the Madeiras family, everyone should know, is now 22 books strong, I think. Oh, gosh. The Madeiras family is, is now 23 or 24 books. I, I, 
I haven't counted in a while. <laughs> there are 23 or 24 books. You may be right. It may just be 20. No, no, I'm no. Sure. I'm going to take your numbers. It so so you you figured out you figured out family's work. You wrote three books and then it just took off. Nora Roberts figured out yeah, that's true. work. I well, was in, I her mean, class, yeah. <laughs> uh, in her class at either RT or RWA, a workshop she did. And she said, when you start writing, write that's family. That's so interesting. Because if you write a family that people will fall in love with, if you're on your ninth book and readers find out that there are eight yep. before it, they're going to want to go and get those eight books. So yeah. yet family will always be out there. So believe it or not, I have only written one book that is not tied to a family. And of all my really? 141 books I've written, and that one was supposed to be tied to a family. <laughs> Wait, so tell it, us about, I have questions about other families, but tell us about that one. How, how, did, it, one? how did it get left out? <laughs> <laughs> well, it got left out. It was it was not supposed to be a family. It was going to be mm. a town. It was um, a silken thread, which is a very uh, love book, and it was supposed it was a four book contract, and I was supposed to write four books on that town called Hattersville, and um, silken thread was an NAACP. Um, nominee for one of the best literary works of, you know, of the year. And I was supposed to write three books after that. I was under contract to write three books after that. Um, before that, I was writing the Madarises. I was writing the Westmorelands. Mm-hmm. Then I wrote the Steels. Then I wrote um, the Godbrothers, who were um, bachelors in demand. I wrote the yeah. Montgomery. So everybody belonged to a family. If I wrote you, you <laughs> went somewhere. You went okay, somewhere. I have to know. So Wait, Brenda, was, I'm sorry. This is like the dumbest question, but I love your thing about like the M and M had been M family. So it was like the Westmorelands where you're like, I'm just going to turn it upside down? <laughs> no, but I didn't think that way. Okay. But um, I wanted a different name going because that was my first venture with Harlequin. And they wanted something different. Where Westmoreland was more a cozy, cohesive family. The Westmorelands, the Madeiras right. was a cozy, cohesive family. The Westmoreland's supposed to be a family raised by older brother, older cousin. This is what, you know, they, this is what my thinking mm-hmm. was, that they were going to be all alpha men. You know, mm-hmm. in the Westmoreland, you may have some alpha, some this, some that, but it was going to be a family of these, I mean, yeah. people. and um, Larger than life, right? I wanted them larger than life. The guys were not, they were, of course, nice guys, but, you know, they were larger than life. They were different than the Westmoreland. So I wanted a name that stood out. So I was, you know, and that's what my husband said. Okay, what's the name going to be, Brenda? I said, I don't know. I got to think of something. So I was, something came across the television that was talking about General Westmoreland, who was in World sure. War. Was it the Vietnam yep. War? Yeah, I think sure. The Vietnam War. And I'm that's like, name. Westmoreland. I like that. That's okay, a good name. Go with that. So I basically went, well, that's how the Westmoreland name, it just sounded so classy to me. 
the West Moreland. So that's how I started the West Moreland family. Yes. Those, the Westmorelands became Silhouette Desires. Right, the Westmoreland. And I never, I have not written a book until recently that was not a Westmoreland book for right. Desire. They became, if you want, if I'm writing for Desire, they're going to always be Westmorelands. And everyone picked it up and they loved it. They, they looked more for the Westmorelands. And then um, Harlequin bought out BET. And they bought out Arabesque and they called me Kamani. So they say, now we want you to create a family for Kamani. I'm like, oh, okay, family for Kamani. And that became a steel family. Kamani, you went to Kamani as their flagship author. You wrote Kamani number one, which is Solid yes. Soul. Can you walk us through that? world. Who is running Kamani at that point? What does that feel like to be asked to be the, that is, that's the first line that you're a flagship of, correct? Um, when you say flagship, there were, I think four books came out. There were four books because it wasn't just one right. book a month. So to say I was, right. you were one of the first, I don't even want to say I was the leading. Yeah. Um, they told me going into it that it was going to be that I was going to lead the line, but that it was going to be four books out that month. So the four books that came out that month, I considered all of us as leading right. that line. And so, and I'm just going to name those people because for, you know, for the everybody listening. So it's you, Brenda Jackson, Gwen Forster, Marcia King-Gamble, and Gwyneth Bolton. Yes, those, I think those were the four that led the line, wonderful authors. So I consider myself as part of the team. I didn't want, because I had a big following at the time with um, Desires. You know, I didn't know, remember, they didn't know how it would be to integrate the Desire line. There had never been, you know, a Black author for Desire, even though Desire was the book that, after a while, I started reading, and I would even send Harlequin letters. Why isn't there a Black man of the month? You know, why aren't there Black people undercover? And they would write me back, say, because there's not a demand for it. And that's how they would put it. And I would, you know, accept it. But Harlequin desires were the quick and easy read. I could read them yeah. on the plane. I could read them, you know, they were quick. And I always had a desire in my so for the very book that I wrote, you know, and I venture, so when I became a desire author, I was honored that finally, you know, I broke the glass ceiling, you know, and it was not just me. It was me and Rochelle mm -hmm. Allers. We both became desire authors. Um, I think my book, I'm credited with uh, starting first because I think I got signed on first and my book came out first. But we were the two um, desire authors. And so I was known as a Westmoreland author. And so when I when they did Kamani, um, all my readers, black readers, you know, was wondering, are you going to just write Kamani now? I'm like, no, I don't believe in the black white thing. I believe in romance. You know, I can write, I write characters who look like me, but it's love story no matter where you want to fit them. I don't like to be pigeonholed anywhere. So I asked my editor at Desire, okay, now that y'all have purchased Kamani, this black line that's Linda Gill is 
Heading and Glenda, and I had worked with them before at BET. Uh, are y'all going to kick me out of, you know, desires now and make me? He says, say no. If you can write both, that's fine with us. And remember, I'm still working full time, corporate wow. America. Amazing. So I'm like, yes, because I got a lot of ideas in <laughs> my head that doesn't fit a Westmoreland, that's not really a desire. So now the Steels are their own brand. So. And are you edited at this point by the same editor in both lines? Do you have different editors? I had different editors. Um, and who do you do you remember yeah. who they are? Oh, definitely. <laughs> okay. I remember. Um, um, my editor for Westmoreland, the one who brought me on, was Mavis Allen. She was their first African, not their first African-American editor, because, of course, they had Vivian Stevens years and years ago. But they bought, basically bought Mavis in, and she was my editor. So Mavis, I love her. You know, she was like, no, you're going to write the book you want to write, as long as it's within the desired guidelines. And it was a challenge, the first book, because she said, we don't want you to change, and we're not going to change. She said, we're going to let you know what books are popular, and then you write it. And I said, okay, well, what books are popular for desires? And she said, she, so I'm like, mm a black woman and a sheik. This should be interesting. <laughs> and right now, that's probably one of my, that was my very first Westmoreland book, Delaney Desert Sheik. I can remember, but I had that book and I, I mean, the cover is just, I mean, it's burned into my memory. <laughs> well, that cover sent me to be <laughs> Because I don't know what I expected. And when they sent me, because you had no influence no, of course the cover. Not. They sent me the cover. And my girl looked okay. But I'm like, that's not, you know, when I did my research on Chic, mm-hmm. they were more darker, Middle Eastern. You know, I'm like, mm. they said, well, we couldn't make your Chic look any different than the Chic's that we already have on the cover of the other books. Oh, all sheets are the same. Yeah, all sheets are the same. I said, oh, okay. So, but once, but it served their purpose because it didn't make my book, they fell in love with the sheet. They they didn't even, the people who, when you went out and bought the book, you saw the sheet before you saw the girl. You didn't even notice that, hey, this girl got a little, Deeper little tan on her than normal. That you brought the book and was halfway through with the book before you say, Well, (laughs) the lady is a black woman. And I had readers, white readers, writing me say, It didn't matter. It didn't matter that Delaney was black, that you didn't hit us over the head with it. You mentioned, you know, she had this color skin, but it just went over our head because of her relationship and her and the sheik's relationship and the the love story. Yeah. You know, so by then they were hooked and they wanted more Westmoreland's. They wanted to know about Delaney's brothers. Right. And they didn't care that Thorne Westmoreland was a black guy. That's another two, great cover, you know, that Thorne yeah. cover. Yes. You know, and then they, that's how it was more acceptable. You know, they was gradually, you know, bought into the fold. So um, I had different editors at different houses, and I got along with all my editors at Who was all your- the, you know, 
houses. Who was your Kamani editor? Uh, Glenda Howard. Glenda Howard. She's still part my editor. I think she was executive editor at uh, for over the series line. Um, so Glenda and Linda uh, Gill. She they came from. They bought the team from BET because that's. Kamani was um, really BET Arabesque. So I still wrote Arabesque, which was different, but it was all under the Kamani line. So that book, A Silken Thread, was going to, was going to be a four-book deal under the Kamani line. It was going to be the big Kamani book. They call it Kamani Press. And I got a four-book deal. But after the first book and the first book did wonderful i was approached by harlequin to um be part of the not the hq the mirror right they did not have a black author for mirror and they thought that i think you had to earn your way in the mirror by sales or something i don't know but I had proof it, and they said, I said, well, what about my other three books, <laughs> you know, that I'm supposed to write that's connected to Silk and Thread? Uh, forget <laughs> those. You know, we want you to write three books um, for the mirror line. And that's how the Grangers came about. You know, all these families. So then I wrote the Grangers, and those the ones that um, Passion Flick um, had made into movies. I'm making into movies, the Granger mm-hmm. books. And well, so and then we I can had, pause and mention this. Who knows? Who knows when this will air? But the week we are signing it, you signed a very big deal this week for with twenty five of your books that were acquired. Yes, I did. So yes, congratulations! Did. Tell us, tell us about that. What did they? Which books did they buy? And do you have any idea about what that might look like? Uh, oh gosh, yes. Yeah. They they bought a mixture. And when everybody said, oh, they bought 25, you know, and some people have just written 25, <laughs> but they, people got to remember, that's not even a tip of right. what I've written. I've written over 141 books. So they were, um, you know, all of my books basically that I've written were out there for them. So, um, and they sought me out. I didn't seek them out. And I'm proud that's of awesome. that, that mm-hmm. they... Um, sought me out and say, hey, we heard about you, we read about you, and why don't more people know about you? And I said, well, Good question. You, know, <laughs> I, you know, I'm a New York Times. I Yes, I was the first African-American to make the New, um, New York Times bestseller list on the romance. Same thing for USA. I got 15 million books in print. He said, you know, you're phenomenal. We want to get you out there. So they looked at my books and they decided what families and what books they wanted to get out there. They know the market, the Hollywood market. You know, I don't, you know, what could sell, what could be good for, um, you know, movie, series, whatever. And things are changing. You know, TV, you went had only three, what, networks, and then you had one cable, Showtime, and HBO. Now everybody's streaming. You got Netflix. You got Hulu. So, I mean, it's the best market out there. And so 
I was honored to do 25, you know, and that's not all, you know, more announcements are coming. So I'm just pleased that people are finally um, learning that romance, taking romance seriously. And that's all I ever wanted, whether or not, no matter who was in on the cover or who was in between the pages. The important thing was that it was a love story about two people who found their way and who end up living happily ever after. And I credit my husband um, with inspiring me because I feel like I'm not saying that if you're not from a happy marriage or whatever, you can't write romance. <laughs> Just you can. You can't. That's out. But I think that when I write it, I have. So much when I come up with memories or just things that I put in my book based on, not based on what I'm going to say, my marriage is just based on because of my marriage. I have a, just a look on look on romance that may be different than others because, you know, my sons, they say, I don't believe you and dad was together since you were 14 <laughs> years old. That you still wear his going steady <laughs> ring. That you do this. And my son tell me now, it's so funny. He's, you know, my husband passed away. It'll be eight years in December. And so I, you know, I, I pretty much, you know, I, I miss him, you know, but I know that he's still with me I really feel strongly about that and my sons tell me you never ask us what we wanted for dinner it was always daddy, daddy <laughs> what daddy wanted I'm like well you do know I was married to your daddy right <laughs> we had to eat what daddy wanted I'm like yeah I was married to your daddy and I wanted to put and so I put that in my book I did I was the wife that had a good husband, so I want to treat him good. I did romantic things. When he got off on the, you know, on the weekend, on Friday night, I had the car all packed. I had the kids with their grandmama. I said, baby, we're going away <laughs> for the weekend. Because it was important for us to always maintain that closeness, mm-hmm. that relationship. When I worked for corporate America, I would travel and all of that, he would hold down the fort while I was gone. But we needed me time. And I think that's why people say we grew apart. Why? You know, you always have to carve in me time. And that's what me and my husband, we did. We carved in me time all the time. The board, where are you? Uh, we're in Daytona <laughs> in a hotel, you know, <laughs> too much information, mom, where you ask, you know, even when they became adults, you know, where are you? We came home from college, you and dad gone, you know, I whatever. It. I love it. This week's episode of Faded Mates is sponsored by Lumi Labs, creators of Microdose Gummies. So you've probably heard about microdosing. If you search a little on the internet, you'll find all sorts of people are microdosing to feel healthier, to perform better, or these days to just chill out a little, um, which is how I have used the gummies here in our house this week. <laughs> Honestly, these these gummies work really well for me. They put me right to sleep at night. Um, they make me just feel very zen during the day, and I'm a I'm a fan. 
I have been using them to sleep. I've also tried one of the other things that might be of interest is there are like several different flavors. Oh, yeah. Do you have a favorite? My favorite is called orange cream cookies, and it tastes like a popsicle. Those sound delicious. So anyway, microdose is available nationwide. Don't eat them like candy. Use them, you know, for microdosing only. Um, And if you want to learn more about microdosing THC, you can just do a quick search online or you can go to microdose.com and use the code FATEDMATES to get free shipping and 30% off your first order. Links, as always, can be found in show notes. But again, that's microdose.com and the code is FATEDMATES. Thanks to Lumi Labs for sponsoring the show. I mean, obviously, your husband was a huge piece of this. It sounds like the whole team at State Farm really <laughs> came came forward for it. Um, what about your author community? Was it? Did you have a group of people who you 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 said you you were writing in the early days with that group of people? Are you is are they still your group? Do you has that group changed? Who is the who are the people who support you? Most of my author friends, uh, some of them are still there. My local group mm-hmm. have changed. When I say local group, um, they split one. They it's the RWA local chapter, the original one that I was a charter member. They're in St. Augustine now, and then there's a Jacksonville chapter. And I'm close to, you know, I go to some meetings, but when you write the schedule I have, and you're working and you're traveling you don't always get to drop in on a meeting. Mm -hmm. You know, I'll drop in just to let them know I'm still here. I'm still a part of you, whatever. But my time is far spent now. I write four to six books a year. And I retired. I only retired in, um, you know, at 55, which was 2008. I retired. And I retired, hit the ground running because one of the reasons I retired because I got a big contract, mm-hmm. you know, that made it worth me because I'm, you know, I'm the right. state farm. You know, I still got years to go, you know, <laughs> and I'm happy. I got the best of both worlds. I got, you know, I'm writing, I'm working in corporate America and this state farm is looking out for me by sending me these places to promote me as an author. So why should I give any of that up? And I got a contract that like blew me away that, oh, I get paid (laughs) that much just to write? (laughs) You know, but still, I like the whole idea of getting up in the morning, getting dressed for work, looking professional, being the one that walks into the conference room, just looking sharp. You know, I just love the whole idea of being in corporate America. And my husband said something to me that when I told, you know, we sat down, we talked about what should I, what I should do. And I said, well, gosh, dear, I love my job. I love being, you know, I got the best of both worlds. I said, yeah, this is a lot of money, but, you know, and he said, you may love your job, but I don't like mine. He said, this money will bring uh, both of us. That's nice. And I'm like, you don't like your (laughs) job? You know, I I never knew that. He said, well, I never told you because what could I do? You know, you and he worked for a manufacturing company. And he said he had been there for 30 some years, longer than I've been on my job. And he said, this money, you know, 
both of us could come home and we could retire together. And, and I looked, I'm like, you don't like your job? Because I love my job. <laughs> and I thought everybody loved their job. And he never said anything. He said, because I had a wife to take care of, kids to send through college. But when I thought, wow, I need to come home for him. And we're going to build something together. We're going to build from here, here on out. We're going to build Brenda Jackson and Gerald Jackson together because be without him, I wouldn't have gone to my first conference. I wouldn't have been able to go to the conferences. After, but he went to a job that he really didn't like um, to make sure I did those things. So I'm like, wow, how can I not? And so making that decision for us, for our family, was basically the best decision I could make. He made my life so much easier when I came home. He took care of everything while I just concentrated on writing. In the year 2010, I did. I put out 10 wow. new books. Who writes 10 books a year? Wow. I was writing for Harlequin. <laughs> I was writing for St. Martin's. I wrote Bantham. I was just writing because all I had to do was write. And I had all these ideas in my head and he would go and, you know, mail them off for me. He was doing whatever he could do to make sure that that's all that everybody was taken care of. My boys were in college. Everything was handled. So amazing. So you've written a hun- more than 140 books. Uh, my 140 one book comes out wow this month the 30th of this november month, so yes. of and it's a westmoreland book yes november 30th yes is there you know we've had other people on who've talked about core stories and the way that they write and, and the hallmarks of their their books is there a hallmark of a brenda jackson romance what what's in every one of your books family love I come from a big family. I have family on my mom's side and my dad's side, and we're all close. And and I think that's why I could write family saga so well, because I understand family dynamics that, you know, yeah, we may fight among each other, but hell, you better not come outside of me by <laughs> coming here and start anything with the family. So that type of dynamic, when I write the Westmorelands, the Madarises, the Steels, the, um, you know, all my books. And now I'm writing not just family, but a group of friends, you know. And now with Carolina Cole, it's not about the people, it's the mm-hmm. town. That's what the callous is, is the town um, that bring everybody together. And that's new and different for me, Catalina Cove, because I never wrote with just section of the, you know, the location was what it is, that you get to meet the people in the town and they may not be related. A lot of them, they go to school together and they're moving back to Catalina Cove because they're finding out New York and all these fast-paced places is not, not the place to be. They want to go back to their roots and go back to the mm-hmm. quiet, quaint, oceanside town of Catalina Cove. So those are romances are developing. And so I love doing that. So now I have um, the Madarises. They're still growing. I'm still writing the Westmoreland. I think I'm up to 30-some books in the Westmoreland series. 
And people will ask me, say, are they going to end? I say, they're going to end when my readers say they're going to end. You know, Hmm. I can, you know, I'm already on the next generation of the Madarises. And I can Mm -hmm. see myself writing the next generation of Westmoreland's or the Steels or whomever. So I don't end, I never say I'm ending a series. I may go on hiatus with it, let a couple of people grow up. In fact, I'm starting a... a YA oh, wow. of books. Wow. wow. That's based on my Madeira's family. Um, it's one of my Madeira's characters um, is a um, journalist. So at some point, um, she's going to be 16. And it was intent for, um, it's going to be a clean YA book similar to what I wrote in school. And it was my intent that it would be for young kids. Now, I have the parents who read the Madeira's book saying, <laughs> wait a minute, we're going to be reading these books. So they know Christy, you know. We know this young girl. We know her, their mom, her mom, and her dad. You know, we've seen their love story. And what's really nice is that the young guy, you know, you're 16, of course. Remember, I fell in love at, seven, at 14. Uh, one of the guys that's her um, sidekick is really going to be the guy she's going to end up and grow up marrying later on. He is the son of another Madaris family friend who has psychic powers. So if you like Beauty and the Beast, who knew when uh, Catherine was in trouble, Vincent was always there, they're going to have that type. But they just think they're just best friends. But as they grow older in this YA book, you know, my older readers know from day one, oh, yeah, sure. they're going to be together. But the young people that read the books going to have to figure out, you know, it's going to be more adventurous for them because he's going to show up that he's going to be there. The parents know, you know, the parents, you know, that my readers know about, they know that their kids going to be connected, but the kids don't know. So it's going to be really interesting. And I'm hoping... I was hoping that it comes out in 2022, but I got so much on my plate with the movie sure. deal that I'm not a consultant on set uh, with most of the movie deals. Very so cool, huh? I'm going to work it in because I really want to write the YA book for the grandkids oh, I love that. and the kids of my readers. Yes. I love that. So something related to romance that I think is I'm curious about is did it, when did it, sort of strike you that category romance and romance in general was such a huge thing? I mean, did you feel like it was from the start? Obviously, you went to RWA, so you knew that there was a community, a big community of romance writers. But I feel like you were really writing, you started writing right in the thick of those big, the, the like, heyday of category romance. And I wonder, did when did you realize what this thing was that you were all doing together? I think when I saw I had a Madeiras and a Westmoreland following, <laughs> um, I took, again, Nora Roberts' word to heart that said, you know, write series. We're not series. You know, when I say series, I mean series like family, whatever, because mm-hmm. people fall in love with the family. And I saw that was true when I read her book, the McGregor's, you know, I fell in love with Serena and Alan and them. And then I read Linda Howard, Mackenzie Wolf. I mean, he was bigger than life. Then I got introduced to Wolf Kids. Yeah. So 
I could see what they were talking about. And I think it didn't dawn on me again until I got into writing the Madeira's family and readers sent me snail mail. And I still got some of the snail mail that they put their postage on. And we love this family. Not only did the family, um, was it a loving family with a father, the uh, mother, but for African-Americans, I think it was a family of stories that were not told, that they were, nobody was in drugs, nobody was doing this. They were a middle-class, upper-class family of educators. Their son, one was a doctor, one was a lawyer, one was a geologist that basically deal with the earth. So I was introducing things that people never thought of occupation that people never thought about doing. So it didn't occur to me at first because I wasn't writing again to fit a mold. I was writing because I believed in romance. It didn't matter to me what color the people were because I had white friends. So it wasn't odd for me to make somebody in the book with a friend who was white. I didn't do that just to get attention or whatever I did it because that's the world that I saw. That's the world that I lived in, that the people that I worked with, you know. So um, I, I don't think it really occurred to me that category romance was all that um, different than me writing um, other than the guidelines. That's what threw me, the guidelines for category romances, because you couldn't do certain things in category romance, they had strict rules where if you write a HQN right. or now, Brenda, were these rules like written down or was it just like they were guidelines? The guys had to be a certain okay. age, they couldn't be a thing. I'll never forget when I told my husband <laughs> I went home and it was his birthday. I say, You are 36. Too old. Say, huh? Ancient. Yeah, but no, that's well, he was 30, 32, or 33. And I said, You are 36 because most of the books that I read about that was the magical age of the guy when he all of a sudden got sexy and <laughs> yeah. all of that. And he got and to he got said, himself together, I think you mean. I'm like, Yeah, that means something. So, so, you know, that to me, um. It was the guidelines. Yes, they had written guidelines that you had to follow. And if you didn't, like everyone fell in love with Uncle Corey. That was one of the older uncles of the Westmorelands who basically was their father brother. So everybody fell in love with Uncle Corey and said Uncle Corey needed love. And I protocol a note, Uncle Corey cannot be a desire because He's too old for wow. this, oh you know, whatever. And I'm like, Justice for Uncle Corey. <laughs> yes, yeah, so I wrote Uncle Corey book. I formed my own publishing company and I wrote Uncle Corey book. So my publishing company became a company that was out there um, for books. Nobody, none of the other publishers wanted that my readers wanted. When did you found that company? I found that company even before I left State Farm, I think in 2006, wow. I formed that company. And the two books that kicked it off were um, a Madeira's book, 
and a, let me see, it was a Madeiras book. It was two Madeiras books that were part of anthologies that they were not going to put in the big book. So they said, well, you want these books back? I said, sure. <laughs> so I wanted to put them back. Don't I mind gave, put them out there with my readers, Trask Maxwell and Felicia Book, Truly Everlasting, and then Cupid's Bowl with Kyle Garwood. So Trask Maxwell book is the first movie I made. I made a movie. In fact, we celebrated the 10th anniversary of Truly Everlasting. Me and my husband, we financed a movie for my son, who was a, got his master's in film from Florida State University. So um, that's when I realized that, yeah, they're bigger than life and that readers want more. So I put Uncle Corey and it's funny because next month Harlequin is bringing Uncle Corey's book out as all next month in 2021 in December 2021 yes December Uncle Corey's called Corey's Mountain it came out I can't tell you the year I wrote it and it came out I think it came out in 2013 2014 I can't remember but it was in demand it was a Westmoreland book and I it love was it. the Westmoreland's favorite uncle and so I basically wrote his story under my publishing company it did well but independent book it still does well and um Holloquin said we would love to do the audio of it so they do an audio of Uncle Corey I bet I mean <laughs> I wonder, I think you've, you, I can imagine what, what you might, how you might answer this, but what do you feel is the mark that you're leaving on romance? Um, the mark that I'm leaving on romance is that it doesn't matter. It's, it's not defined by skin color. It's not defined by where you live, who you are. Romance is about, it's a feeling. And if I can convey that in my writing, that that's what romance is about. And then if someone tried to reclassify what romance is or what they think romance should be, like the lady who thought that she could tell me that if I make my characters white, that then they would sell like them being black was not romance because of their skin color. So when someone is not accepting of what you're doing, then you create your own. Like when these publishers, not only just Holocaust, but others say, oh no, that girl, we can't have a size 18 girl for a heroine. Then you start your own series of big figured women, you know, or whatever. And there's going to be a market out there. I have had older people write me that read my books. I'm 80 years old, and I love Brenda Jackson. But I'm tired of reading <laughs> about these young people who are the age of my great-grandkids. <laughs> Can you write about older men? You did it with Uncle Corey. So I write about seasonal yeah. romance, seasonal romance with older 60-, 70-year-old guys, you know. And my young niece said, I don't want to read that. That's not that got old. Well, just like you said that these older women said, we don't want to read that. Those guys are young. So there's enough for everybody. Um, 
If you are not invited to the table, you create your own table. The same thing with the movies. You know, no one was knocking on my door um, asking for any of my books to be made into movies. And that was the hardest thing to get my readers to understand that it takes a lot of money to make a movie. And I know because I did make Mm -hmm. one on my own. With my husband, 401k, that he said, I'm getting my money back, right? I'm like, yeah, baby, you're getting your money back. And I did, he got his money back and everything. But it takes money, you know? And so, um, but you create your own table. And that's what I did with partnership with Bobby Smith, who already had Hollywood connections. So you see what you have to do but so i'm leaving my mark i will tell people i'm independent i go after what i want in a very professional way i remember i give my readers the utmost respect and anyone who knows me say how do you give back to your readers i give them stuff they say you're going to sell this in your stuff say no i'm giving this to you this is my thank you because my book will be a just another book on the shelf the reader didn't buy it i want to be treated as a reader as i was treated as a reader there were some authors when i went to these conventions that i would stop in the hall they did not have time for me they said excuse me I'm busy. I don't. And I'm like, wait a minute. I don't spend my lunch money on your book. The least show me respect. And so I always said that if I ever became a well-known author, I was going to let my readers know how much I appreciated them. And that's the mark I'm doing. And if I could get others to say, don't contact your readers when you want them to buy a book. You know, that's good. You know, that's how marketing goes. But when you don't have anything out, just let them know you appreciate them because some of them are spending their $10, their $12 on you. Show appreciation. They don't have to do that. Brenda, when you look back on your 140 plus books, and maybe this is an impossible question to answer when your bench is that deep. Do you have a book that you think of as your favorite, one you're particularly proud of? Yes, and that's Ties That Bind. Ties That Bind was my first period piece because it had to answer questions for me that I didn't understand. I did not understand the Vietnam War. All I knew was that I had three male cousins who were pulled out of college to go fight a war Two of them didn't come back, and one came back was not the same ever. Um, And then I didn't understand all the race thing. You know, I came up during a segregated time. But then when I became an adult, I had friends of all race and nationalities. But I needed to understand what went back on during the civil rights movement. So I needed to understand that. And then I needed to understand the Black Panther, mm-hmm. why people looked at them as negative when growing up in high school. They were not. They were just college kids trying to make a difference. What? Why people thought at some point, when did they become militant if people thought they became right. militant? 
So I wrote a love story of three couples or two couples who met on the University of Howard campus. And, you know, our vice president mm-hmm. went to Howard. Um, and how and this was back in 1968. It took me three years of research because I'm going back right. in time. Remember, I was the one that read my story. I, <laughs> I remember author. that. <laughs> That's the closest to a historical that I did because I had to go back and read and see what people were eating, how they were dressing, the mode of transportation. And I wrote, and it dealt with the Vietnam War, how these friends, some of them went to war. One of the guys got caught up with the Black Panther to do good. And how in the end, the FBI, and this is true because I did all my research because I knew people said, that's not going to be true. Yes, it is. Do your research. One thing people know about me, I do my research. Yes, they targeted the Black Panther and Martin Luther King as yeah. Um, militants for negativity's sake, and that's how people were not Martin Luther King, they didn't. Um, they think you know, know that he was the hero that he was, but the Black Panther, when you say that, is oh my goodness, that's no, these were college kids that got together to take care of their community because of injustices. And the guy who was the FBI director then, Hoover, basically targeted them as militants and people fell in line so they're militants and put a uh, price on their heads so that book is a beautiful love story um and anyone who reads it somebody say that's my best kept secret because i don't promote mm-hmm. it a lot but mm-hmm. it's out there it's won a lot of national awards and i'm hoping um that people know that Todd Sitbine is probably my best book ever. And there can never be another Todd Sitbine for me. It can't be. And um, and from Todd Sitbine, because, you know, I wrote their daughter's story years later. I wrote their daughter's story, the co- one of the daughters, one of the couple's daughter's story. And um, one of the couple's friend, son story. So that's why I can't say it's my standalone book because I've kind of like, you know, added those two books off of it. But Ties That Bind is, to me, a, I don't want to call any of my work masterpieces, but if I could, it's that's not a series romance. It's a epic, a saga. I'm so I'm buying it Same. right now. That's the danger of these. I'm like, <laughs> click, click, click. Sold. Oh Sold. Goodness. You did it. <laughs> yes. It's a romance. Now, it's a drama. It's one of my first drama romances. I can't wait. But it's it's powerful. It's powerful. Sounds amazing. Brenda Jackson, thank you so much yes. for joining us. Uh, thank you for having this me. This was magnificent. And... I'm so thrilled to have had a chance to talk to you and hear your magnificent stories. I appreciate um, y'all just having me on, getting my story out there. And my story is really no different than any other writer, you know, with the writing of the books, the rejections. (laughs) And then all of a sudden, oh, you're Brenda Jackson. I'm like, yeah, but you didn't want me years ago. But okay, I'm Brenda Jackson (laughs) now. You know, and that must feel good. It feels good. It's bittersweet. You didn't tell us her name, Brenda, but did you ever get a chance 
to feel smug in the face of the person who rejected you at the very beginning? Um, no, but I did to the young lady when I was at RWA and I was in this um, workshop with other Mm African-American women. And the question came up with this editor. She was doing the over the workshop. Why are y'all not right? Uh, why are y'all not buying more African American books? And this was before yeah. Era Best. And she said, "Well, personally, um, um, the books that I see have given me the impression that Black women just can't write." And we're right sitting there. there like, "Wow, what?" Wow. I mean, she blanketed, I mean, she painted all of us with that brush just because she got one or two across her desk. She says, I don't even look at any more of them. I'm like, my God, is this lady know what she's saying? And someone confronted her afterward and she didn't see anything wrong with what she said. And I'm like, I can't believe that. So. I was proud when I saw her recently, when I say recently, within the last five years, she's moved up at that same publishing company. And I was proud to let her know that, yeah, I was in that group that you said, well, guess what? I am a New York Times, USA Today, best-selling Many times over. And I've got, yeah. And Mm -hmm. so you were wrong. Black women can write. You didn't give us a chance, you know, but I'm glad. You were not at the house that did give us a chance. And I walked off. That's usually not me. But I tell people that story to say that people are going to discourage you. And you have to believe in yourself. What she said could have, I could have walked out there and said, right. well, dang, I better not try even try to write if everybody thinks like she does. But it only fired me just like the person that told Michael Jordan he'll never play basketball. Mm -hmm. You know, when people say you can't, you prove them wrong and you do it. If it's in you to do it, you're going to do it. Thank you so much for being with us. What an amazing conversation. Thank you for having me. That was great. They are all great, Jen. Here's what we were just saying before we started recording. What people don't really understand is that as we are recording with these folks, we are also shopping on eBay like fiends. <laughs> don't tell everybody that. Jen. They don't know. Look at this. Would be months. I don't want them taking our books. Oh, but they don't know. They don't know who everybody is. <laughs> they don't know. Only they're like, why aren't there copies of ties that bind on eBay? No, Rebecca Romney has ruined us for book buying. Ugh. Don't tell Old Town Books, we're sorry. We're <laughs> independent booksellers. We're I've been sorry. cheating on you with eBay, everybody. <laughs> Seriously, with like lots of Harlequin American. Listen, that was great. That was great. This was maybe outside of Vincent Virga, one of the first authors who really talked so much about how her personal relationships, right? Like, like, right, Vincent talked mm-hmm. about his his long-term husband, partner. And I thought I just I loved hearing how personal that story was and how how much she loved her husband. I I love a real yeah. life love story, everybody. Listen. I'm sure no one's shocked to hear that. And the truth is, is that, you know, most, you don't often hear that story. 
I mean, you often hear, oh, romance, you know, there are romance novelists who are in great relationships. There are romance novelists who are in not great relationships. There are romance novelists who've never had long-term relationships or been married. And all of those things are, you know, Brenda was quick to say, you you can do any of those things. You can live your life in any of those ways. But these sort of real, true love stories, it, it does make you feel like they come along once in a once in a blue moon in a lot of ways. And gosh, it's, I mean, from the moment he gave her for Christmas a oh, stack yeah. of loose leaf paper, it just, oh, I perfect. Know. What a prince. But also, what a remarkable lens on yes. that category boom and how it was to be writing categories then and how it is to be writing categories now. Mm-hmm. I also, I was really struck by her commitment to like keeping her job, her corporate job, right? That that was such a, I love that, right? Brenda from State Farm. I am not kidding when I say State Farm, I'm coming your way the next time I need insurance. We have been, I'm way ahead of you. We've been State Farm customers for 20 years. Amazing. What a cool gig. And the the CEO sending his secretary with flowers. Stop it. That would, that, yeah. amazing. The thing that's also interesting about it is it feels for so many writers, the goal would be, you know, to full-time writing. And I think it's an awesome model for, no, like, not necessarily, right? Like, you can, you can, you might have another job that you love, too. And so I loved hearing, like, her love for her work and how it made her feel about herself. I think it doesn't surprise me because I think of category romance as being really rooted in women that work. And so it doesn't surprise me that she would be a category superstar because she herself lived that, right? Like, she really knows yeah. how important that is. I thought that was awesome. Yeah, yeah. I couldn't believe that she worked another job so and I mean, wrote 10 I'm, books a year well look we've been reading we've been reading brenda jackson since oh yeah you know the beginning and it feels like i couldn't i just couldn't believe it i couldn't believe she had a second job that whole time yeah and then and then i love how at the end she just dropped that she started her own publishing house oh i was like, like an hour me? in <laughs> i was like wait talk about bearing the lead and and like financed her own film yeah. like i right. mean talk about a woman who knew what brenda jackson could be and just pointed herself in that direction and went for it and i loved her stories about just how the mark she's leaving is to write the books that you should write that you want to write and find don't take no for an answer what do we think about the RWA implosion and, you know, the stories that then really people, maybe some folks had only heard for the first time, right, about borders and being segregated in the store to a special section. And, you know, like you hear these stories about editors who said, I'm sorry, I just can't buy, you know, we've heard them time and time again. But I still think hearing, giving like letting Brenda Jackson tell her own story, right? And hearing that, it's so powerful. And the minute she said that this woman said, you know, there's just one thing wrong, I was like, I know what it was that was wrong. And I was really, its it, I don't know, like it's, it's not hard to believe. <laughs> it's not that I'm saying that, but it just feels like when you think about the 90s, 
you know, this was post a, a decade when, you know, there were powerhouse television shows and movies. And so to have publishing really kind of stick to the story that there's there's just no room for a for you know black characters in romance um and when we talk about tr- this through the lens of trailblazers right i can't right. help but think about sandra kitt when yes. she came on and talked about you know vivian stevens bought the book where sandra wrote two black characters falling in love and then vivian left after 18 months you know however however that happened and Sandra saying, you know, and then when I proposed books, it just became clear which ones they were going to buy. Which one they were going to buy, right. And, you know, Sandra Kitt was writing for more than a decade before Brenda Jackson came in. And, you know, it just feels like what we're what we're getting with these these stories with Brenda Jackson with Sandra Kitt with Beverly Jenkins is this you know very different look at how the world was moving right right so if for all the ways that the conversations with Sandra Brown and Jane Ann Krentz have felt like everything's moving very quickly it feels like a snail's pace right right and you know they a lot of these people were in the same world at the same time, right? Reading yeah. the same books, inspired by the same authors. And so that's the well, that I mean, really, yeah. the number of times Kathleen Woodowis has come up on yes. these Trailblazer episodes. Yes. It's really remarkable. Um, you know, and there's a reason, you know, that goes back to the reason why we decided to do it this year when we knew, you know. Right. The flame and the flower. Uh, right. 2022 was going to be a, a banner year for romance in some ways. But boy, it's... I keep coming back to that, too, like that one book just landing in the hands of all these magnificent writers. So I really loved that conversation. I thought it was fantastic. I loved hearing. You know what else I thought was really cool before we wrap up is a lot of people talk about, like, I was inspired by these authors. But, you know, when she talked about sitting in a, like, Nora Roberts presenting at RWA and having Nora Roberts say, mm-hmm. right, about families, how concrete that advice then becomes, right? Yeah. This isn't just, I read Nora, I, you know, I read Kathleen E. Woodywiss, but I sat in a room and heard this advice from an author. Yeah. And that changed me. And I think that's really pretty cool, too, to hear hear those stories because of course when you're presenting you don't know who's in the audience right no no i gotta write a family that's my next that's what i'll do next (laughs) write a big family family. what have you been waiting for i don't know (laughs) i'm just a big dummy over here um that was great everybody go read ties that bind um which i literally bought while she was talking same um because when I'm, when an author says, here's the thing, not every author, I, those of you who have been listening to every one of these episodes, you've heard, this is not an easy question for most of the people that we've talked to. Um, and boy, she knew right away. She did. Yeah. So I love, I, I love to read it. That question we should is deep dive it. one of my favorites. I know. Well, yeah. the Vietnam Especially thing. Vietnam. Right? Right there in our wheelhouse. I immediately was like, oh. click, 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 click. 
Anyway, you all, we hope that you are reading something great this week. So we will include all of the information that we talked about at the beginning of the episode in show notes. Don't forget to visit the website to take the listener survey. Just go to fadedmates.net and click on the button that reads, take the survey and tell us what you think. Thanks to Blair Babylon and Lumi Labs for sponsoring the episode. The best way for you to support us is to support them. And stick around right now and you can hear the opening chapters of Once Upon a Time in audio. Thank you, Blair. This is Once Upon a Time, Billionaires in Disguise, Flicka, book one of the Runaway Princess series. Written by Blair Babylon. Narrated by Jason Clark and Lucy Rivers. A fairy tale told by a princess. Flicker von Hanover. Her Serene Highness, Frederica Marie Louise Victoria Caroline Amelie Alexandra Augusta, Princess von Hanover und Cumberland, Princess of Great Britain and Ireland, Duchess of Brunswick Luneburg, and heir to an assortment of other useless titles to extinct kingdoms and duchies, but including a three-digit succession number to the British throne through George V of Hanover, who had been George III of England, is staring straight at you. Her golden blonde hair curls in waves past her shoulders. Her heart-shaped face and pixieish chin are level and serious. Her clear green eyes don't waver from yours. She says... Let me tell you a story. A fairy tale, actually. But it's not about a princess. No. It's about a golden-haired little girl who has no shits left to give. It's a Goldilocks story. So, this little girl lives in a village, and a family of bears lives outside the village. Bears. Man-eating, fanged, enormous Kodiak bears, with blood dripping from their claws and chins. There's probably a sign on the road that reads, Danger! Get the hell out of here! And don't police tape fluttering from the trees from all the times that headless corpses have been found on the property with their guts torn out. But what does Goldilocks do? Does she run and hide? Does she stay safe in the village? No. The way she's staring straight at you is unnerving. Goldilocks walks down the road past the danger sign and shredded police tape and breaks into the bear's house. She vandalizes the place, throwing porridge at the walls and breaking the furniture, eating whatever she finds, and then she lies down and takes a nap. A goddamn nap! These are not the actions of a good citizen. These are not the actions of a person who gives a shit about what is nice or proper or appropriate. Her Serene Highness Flicka von Hanover has not blinked her wide, crystal-green eyes all this time. She says to you, That is a golden-haired bitch who wants to watch the world burn, who wants to see it all burn to ashes and something better, much better. Rise to take its place. Escape. Flicker von Hanover. This is the night my life ended, and though I didn't know it at the time, 
the night I was reborn. The long hotel hallway, lined with doors, stretched in front of Flicker von Hanover as she ran as hard as she could. Her ankles wobbled in her gilded stiletto sandals every time her feet thudded on the carpeting. Her slim, crystal-encrusted skirt was bunched around her thighs so she could stretch her long legs. Her purse dangled from her wrist and bounced against her thigh with each stride. Just a few more doors. 432, 434, 436. If she could reach room 460, she had a chance. She glanced behind her, risking a stumble as she sprinted. Doors studded the silent hallway behind her. Shimmering sconces threw dim light over the Grand Hotel's gold carpeting and black night pressed against the windows. She could still taste the metallic tinge of blood in her mouth. No other hotel guests were standing around in the hallways at four in the morning. 442, 4.44, 4.46. When she had escaped from her own suite minutes before, the secret servicemen, armed with handguns and large knives, had been chasing her. Flicker had leaped into the closing elevator, rolling on the floor and slamming a shoulder against the back wall. It had been a stroke of luck that the elevator was at the penthouse, and the doors had been closing just as she had run. That little bit of luck had allowed her to make it this far. At the fourth floor, she had pushed all the buttons to send the elevator lower into the hotel, hoping to confuse her pursuers. 450, 452, 454... Flicker ran harder, trying to make it. She looked back again. The hallway behind her was still empty. Her husband's secret service men hadn't expected her to be able to sprint so quickly in high-heeled shoes and a slim ball gown. But princesses are accustomed to wearing evening dress. She could probably rappel down a cliff face in petticoats and pumps. Flicker von Hanover was a real modern princess, not a fairy tale one, and she had run for her life more than once. The secret service men must have made for the stairwells, splitting up to search each floor for her, planning to communicate her position to each other for reinforcements. That's how she would have orchestrated the search. They would come thundering out of the stairwells at each end of the hallway at any moment and see her racing through the hotel with her pale pink dress hiked up around her hips and a diamond tiara glittering in her blonde hair. Room 460. Flicker pounded on the door and held her hand against the wood, willing it to open right now. The door moved under her hand. The tall blonde man opening the door saw her, and his grey eyes glanced down the corridor, worried. A white towel was slung low on his hips, below the accordion pleats of his abs, and a livid scar creased the skin on his biceps on one arm. Other fainter scars crisscrossed his pale gold skin. Deslautig, Flicker whispered. He said he'd kill me. Dita grabbed her wrist and pulled her inside, bending to survey the hallway after she passed him. Dita Schwartz was one of the bodyguards who'd protected her from assassins for years. Did anyone follow you? Flicker leaned against the wall beside the door, still out of breath from running. I lost them. Dita pressed the door closed and flipped the locks. You're sure? I think so. He held his finger to his lips, watching through the door's peephole.
Flicker flattened herself against the wall. Her purse dropped off her wrist and thumped on the floor. Dita waited, peering through the lens, and then dodged to the side, ending up standing inches in front of her. He flicked off the lights and turned, shielding her from the sight of anyone looking through the other side of the peephole. The view through the lens probably didn't go far to the sides, and no one should be able to see them in the darkness, but she hid behind him anyway. In the faint light misting from the bedroom, Dita's chest and shoulders were broad, so wide across, and his muscles were chiseled lines in his flesh. The scent of fresh soap and an herbal spicy cologne wafted off of him, faint until the nose was literally two inches away from his tanned skin and rounded chest muscles. He must have showered after they had both closed down Flicker's brother's wedding reception that night, only a few hours before. Flicker tried not to breathe, tried not to gasp and cry in rage or frustration. Those emotions whipped around inside her until she couldn't help herself any longer. She leaned toward him and rested her cheek against Dita's strong shoulder, seeking comfort. His bare skin and silken chest fuzz warmed her face. She breathed in his comforting male scent that had felt like safety to her for so many years. A little bit of cinnamon, a little bit of clean soap, and wildness. She knew she shouldn't. She knew she should lean back and pull away from him. But the terror subsided a little, so she didn't move. Dita's hand cut the back of her head, cradling her. He moved closer, resting his forearm on the wall as they waited. Revulsion and terror warred inside Flicker. She didn't want anyone, anyone at all, to touch her. Her guts twisted in her stomach. And yet, this was Dita. Just Dita. She'd loved him once. And she'd hated him. But she couldn't imagine running to anyone else when her life was in danger. If anyone could protect her, it was Dita Schwartz. And if no one else would take the chance, Dita would. Flicker snaked her arm around Dita's tight waist to hold on to him, lest her shaking knees give out. Under her arm, the sinews woven around his torso slid under his skin as he barely breathed. His terrycloth towel snagged on the crystals covering her silk dress. Dita wrapped both his arms around her shoulders and whispered near her ear. Does he know about us? Flicker shook her head. I never told him. Good. Footsteps marched down the hallway outside and paused outside the door. Flicker held on to Dita's strong waist more tightly and tried not to breathe. Time. Stand still. Three months earlier. <laughs> 